Uh, welcome to the LSE for this online event. My name is Nigel Dodd and I'm Professor of Sociology at the London School of Economics and Political Science and Editor-in-Chief of the British Journal of Sociology. And before I introduce tonight's speaker, I'd like to announce the winner of the BJS Prize. This is awarded to what we consider to be the best and most significant article published in the journal between December 2018 and September 2020. I'm delighted to say that this year's prize has been awarded to Aaron Reeves and Robert DeVries for their paper, Can Cultural Consumption Increase Future Earnings? Exploring the Economic Returns to Cultural Capital. Members of our editorial board who voted on the prize were effusive. One remarked that the paper contains remarkable findings on social stratification based on high quality data, while another complimented the paper for its theoretical and technical sophistication and the understated significance of the findings for understanding the reproduction of class and status advantage. So on behalf of my fellow editors and the editorial board, I'd like to congratulate Aaron and Robert for their brilliant article. They share a cash prize and will be writing a piece about the paper for Wiley's Sociology Lens in the very near future. And so we come to the 2020 annual BJS lecture which is being held a little later than usual because of inevitable delays to our schedule last year. This event has been running for more than a decade with a series of distinguished speakers who have set out their own vision of the most significant questions and debates within the discipline. Each lecture is usually published in a subsequent issue of the journal with a set of responses to it by most by other major scholars within the field. I'm very pleased to welcome Gaminda Bambra uh, as this year's lecturer. Gaminda is Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies in the School of Global Studies, University of Sussex. She's a good friend of the BJS. Her paper on our, in our 2017 Brexit Trump special issue was the most cited and discussed. And she also has a paper in our forthcoming special issue on Thomas Piketty's Capital and Ideology, edited by, edited by Mike Savage and Name a Paid a Party, which will be published in the next couple of weeks. So please look out for that. Gaminda was elected a Fellow of the British Academy in 2020 and has held visiting positions at Princeton and the Universities of Brasilia in Brazil and Likoping in Sweden. Her first book, Rethinking Modernity, Postcolonialism and the Sociological Imagination, won the BSA's Philip Abrams Memorial Prize for first best book or best first book in 2008. Her second book, Connected Sociologies, was published in 2014. Gaminda has also edited five major collections from Silencing Human Rights in 2009 to Decolonizing the University in 2018. In addition, she's organized many special issues for major journals. The title of the lecture today is A Polity Divided, Empire, Nation and the Construction of the British Welfare State. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's lecture is, BJ, is LSEBJS. This online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, there'll be the chance for you to put your questions to Gaminda and please do engage as much as you can. Um, short of being able to applaud, the best we can do is ask great questions. And to submit these, uh, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be passed on to me and I will pose as many as possible. 
Please let us know your name and affiliation. We are particularly keen to hear from our students, alumni and incoming students. So please let us know. But now I'm delighted to hand over to Gaminda. Thank you so much for that, Nigel. That was a lovely introduction. And I'm absolutely delighted to be delivering the BJS lecture this year. The talk that I'm going to give is around ideas of empire, nation, and the construction of the welfare state. So the consolidation of the British welfare state in the mid 20th century did not only coincide with the systematic dismantling of the British empire, but was significantly shaped by it. However, the dominant narratives situate it firmly within a national context. This is as true of academic scholarship as it is of popular representations. For example, one need only think of Ken Loach's Spirit of 45. Such understandings go on to shape contemporary political debates centered on questions of entitlement, concerns over legitimacy, and increasingly the very telling of history itself. Indeed, just yesterday, the Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden chaired a private meeting with heritage bodies, which was trailed by his statement that, and I quote, proud and confident nations do not seek do not seek to run from or airbrush the history upon which they are founded. Alongside this, Samir Shah on the Today programme argued that as heritage bodies are funded by taxpayers' money, then the views of taxpayers, those he considers the silent majority, ought to be taken more explicitly into account than the minority of strident voices arguing for change. Interestingly, my talk addresses both of these issues. It doesn't seek to run from or airbrush the history upon which the British state was founded. And it also reveals the extent to which colonial subjects paid taxes to the British government and therefore implies in the government's own terms, the legitimacy of descendants of empire having a stake in how our shared history is represented. In this talk then, I will show how Britain has been a divided polity historically how this division has been both acknowledged and erased in specific practices of historiography, and why this matters for our present understandings. In brief, my argument is that the British state was an imperial state with a national project at its heart. The imperial state was constituted in part through relations of extraction, to use Martin Daunton's resonant phrase for taxation, while the national project comes into being through relations of redistribution, or more prosaically, welfare. The asymmetry between these relations, I argue, calls into question both the dominant understandings and practice of distributive justice, both historically and in the present. It also has implications for how the social sciences themselves are configured, but that's an aspect that I may have to leave to the Q&A. At the outset, I should also state that my focus will primarily be on India. It was not only the most populous part of the British Empire, but it also contributed the most significant amount in terms of wealth to the British state. The arguments I make, however, are also applicable to other contexts, and there is much work to be done. So let me begin with the relations of extraction or taxation that bind together rulers and ruled, and which have been seen as central to the social contract, deemed from lock onwards to be at the heart of the modern state. 
As the authors of a call for a new fiscal sociology set out, and I quote, taxes formalize our obligations to each other. They define the inequalities we accept and those that we collectively seek to redress. Martin, Mehotra and Prasad go on to argue further that taxation is crucial in the development of the imagined community of the nation to the extent that it enmeshes us in a web of generalized reciprocity. A focus on taxation and the distributed returns to citizens of that taxation then clarifies the nature of the state, its limits and its boundaries. Income tax had first been raised in Britain in 1798 to cover the costs of its wars with revolutionary France. After the end of these wars in, 1915, in 1815, however, it was discontinued as a consequence of strong public opposition to it. Income tax was not reintroduced in Britain until the mid 19th century, first as a temporary measure by Peel in 1842, before coming to be an established part of the social contract of the state through Gladstone's reforms in 1853. These reforms also brought Ireland into the income tax regime following the earlier Act of Union that had established the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. During this period and through to the end of the 19th century, the fiscal constitution of the state, with its emphasis on a judicious balance of taxes and taxpayer consent, has been regarded as being remarkably successful by historians of British taxation. One such, Martin Daunton, for example, argues that the tax system was designed to be carefully balanced to ensure proportionality and to be a means of integration and not conflict. As such, he argues, no group or interest felt that it was unduly burdened by taxation. But as Douglas Cantor argues, one of the problems with this narrative is that the UK was not just British, but it also included Ireland, and Irish fiscal policy fits uneasily into this account. At the very outset of reintroducing income tax into the British state, Peel omitted Ireland from any obligation to pay due to a concern with exacerbating opposition to the Act of Union. However, when the famine occurred in 1845, there was then resistance to the provision of relief by central government due to the Irish being deemed not to have paid their share of taxation. As such, the consensus on taxation, which is represented as a feature of the British state, does not exist in Ireland, where the debate on fiscal policy, in particular arguments about overtaxation, remained a strong feature in movements for home rule from the mid-19th century onwards. Such debates find their parallel counter suggests within the wider empire. One of the key expenses of the state for which income tax was initially raised was war. However, over the 19th century, the military costs of the British state were largely exported to the wider empire and specifically to India. As Christopher Bailey notes, both through the indirect means of tribute, as well as directly through the overseas use of the Indian army, the company state, which was the East India Company state, sustained the domestic military fiscal ma machine. The Indian peasant, he goes on to argue, and I quote, bore a heavy part of the costs of Britain's world role, which the British people were not prepared to bear. The standard idea of the nation at arms then should actually be understood as the empire at arms, as both personnel for the army and the costs of war through colonial taxation were increasingly borne by the wider empire. 
This reduced the claims of the British state on the national economy to below the levels of the 18th century, and it eased the burdens of domestic taxation. It also removed any requirement for national military conscription, and it allowed the domestic state, in Bailey's terms, to disarm and civilianize itself. One consequence of this was that while continental Europe was convulsed in revolutions in 1848, Britain, in contrast, saw the demise of equivalent struggles, such as Chartism. As Miles Taylor argues, and I quote, by displacing the tax burden from metropole to periphery, and generally by facilitating an improvement in living conditions, there was no significant expression of working class discontent in Britain during this period. There was, however, an eruption of serious discontent across the empire, with riots and rebellions in Ceylon, the Ionian Islands and the Orange River, together with fiscal crises across the wider empire, including the Caribbean. Taylor further argues that a major uprising was temporarily averted in the Punjab, but not stayed. The subsequent events of 1857 there were precipitated by factors that had mitigated against such disturbances domestically primarily an, a sense of an unfair burden of taxation. So if we go on to look at taxation, we see that by the latter half of the 19th century within Britain, there was a single rate of income tax imposed upon the domestic population. Those who earned below £160, which for the time was four times the national average wage of around £40, received a full abatement and did not pay any income tax. The abatements together with subsequent tax-free allowances for children meant that the working class and much of the middle class did not pay any income tax at all until the First World War. Considerations around the proper balance of taxation operated somewhat differently in the empire. The East India Company, after the defeat of the local rulers at the Battle of Plassey in 1757, had obtained the right to collect taxes in the provinces of Bengal, Bihar and Orissa. The company initially maintained the structures of the existing taxation regime, with land revenue forming the bulk of its taxation income, but this was diversified over time to include new taxes on salt and opium. An income tax was explicitly implemented after the British Crown took over direct rule a century later. The 1860 Indian income tax was closely modelled on the British version, except, as the governor of Madras, Charles Trevelyan, noted, while the financial system was transplanted to India, a basic requirement of that system, representation of taxpayers, was missing. This enabled the taxation system in India to be much more extractive than that in Britain. And as Dada Bhai Naroji stated, by examining the revenue raised in taxation as a proportion of national income, it was clear that India bore the heavier burden. The central issue for my purposes here is the following, and it's paraphrased from Naroji. Not only was India more heavily taxed than England, but there was another additional circumstance. The whole of British taxation returned entirely to the people themselves from whom it was raised. But that which was obtained out of India did not all return to them. As George Wingate wrote in 1859, and whom Naroji quotes, Taxes spent in the country from which they are raised are totally different in their effect from taxes raised in one country and spent in another. 
In the former case, the taxes collected from the population at large are again returned to the industrious classes. But in the latter case, they constitute no mere transfer of a portion of the national income from one set of citizens to another, but an absolute loss and extinction of the whole amount withdrawn from the taxed country. To put it in anachronistic Keynesian terms, the multiplier has its effects elsewhere, while the extraction depresses activity locally. What we see through this discussion of relations of extraction is A, that Britain established domestic legitimacy and quiescence through imperial revenue, and B, that that imperial revenue included the taxes extracted from a colonized population. So now I'll move on to discuss in more detail the relations of redistribution. Scholars of distributive justice, such as Michael Waltzer, argue that redistribution presupposes a bounded world. Collective solidarity relies on an understanding of us as insiders, as opposed to them as strangers. Such a demarcation determines who ought to be seen as the legitimate beneficiary of the distribution of collective goods and social entitlements. While the necessity of boundaries to the possibility of just redistribution is regarded as self-evident, what is rarely considered is the imperial nature of the resources that are to be redistributed. The provision of welfare in Britain in the 18th and 19th centuries occurred through a mixed moral economy of limited state interventions, supplemented by the work of voluntary organizations, friendly societies, and private charitable activity. The low burden of domestic taxation, made possible through the imperial relations of extraction, meant that until the 20th century, the state had less involvement in the direct provision of national welfare. For example, as Pat Thane notes, at the end of the 19th century, it is estimated that more money was transferred to the poor through charities in London alone than was expended nationally via the poor laws. While much is written about how charities were organised, who benefited from them, and the relations of deference they created, there is remarkably little systematic work on where the money that was dispersed through philanthropic initiatives came from. There is, a, there is a separate literature on the extent of money brought back to Britain from empire, but the connections between the two are rarely made. The Nabobs, as returning East India Company employees were known, were recognised as part of Britain's growing philanthropic community. As Tillman Nechtman notes, for example, newspaper subscriptions show that company employees were substantial donors to charities. But scholarship on the relationship between charity and welfare rarely acknowledges this association with imperial wealth. A recent exception is work by Andrew McKillock, who demonstrates how wealth made in the empire was deployed to secure status back at home through charitable activities, such as contributing to the poor relief of a parish or funding hospitals and infirmaries. Further, he shows how an imagined community of belonging was often mobilised to elicit charitable donations from members across empire for national welfare projects. The situation was somewhat different in terms of charitable initiatives in relation to issues of colonial welfare. Across the period of British rule, from the East India Company onwards, 
India faced a series of devastating famines and periods of scarcity. The most intense such period was from 1860 to 1910, coinciding with the implementation of the income tax there. During this period, it is estimated that over 14 million people died of starvation. And they died in the context of grain being exported by rail from the famine regions and taxes continuing to be collected, even in the worst affected areas. While environmental factors such as the failure of the monsoon contributed to food shortages in specific areas, these shortages were never absolute. As Ajit Ghosh argues, in the latter half of the 19th century, India was a food surplus country. The issue was, and I quote, that exports of food grains were taking place even in years when thousands or perhaps millions were dying of starvation. The maintenance of exports was a consequence of what were presented as colonial laissez-faire policies, which prevented officials from interfering in the natural operation of free trade. These policies did not, however, prevent them from collecting tax from an impoverished population. Famines then were products of colonial public policy. Discussions about whether Indian subjects were entitled to any relief from the government occurred in the context of earlier arguments about the poor laws in Britain and Ireland. British officials were adamant in their opposition to famine relief, stating that if arguments for such relief were accepted, then that would lead to arguments for the permanent maintenance of the Indian poor. This was at a, at a time when general poor relief was provided as a legal right to the destitute poor in Britain. Although interestingly, such a legal right did not exist in Ireland, which Laurie Charlesworth has argued contributed to the high number of famine deaths there. The relations of extraction, both political and economic, explicitly bound India into the British polity and were implicated in its general conditions of immiseration. There was little acceptance, however, that these relations generated a web of reciprocity in terms of equivalent relations of redistribution. Indeed, actions were taken specifically to limit any reciprocity arising motivated out of private philanthropy or individual or charitable concern. For example, the Anti-Charitable Contributions Act of 1877 placed a prohibition with a threat of imprisonment on donations of private aid to victims of famine in India. The issues of asymmetry were to become even starker across the 20th century, highlighting further what Desmond King calls the illiberalism of the liberal state. The balance that Daunton argued had been so central to the deliberations and domestic activities of the British state in the 19th century came to be significantly disrupted by the wars of the subsequent one. The burden of taxation increased during the period of the First World War as interest payments to holders of the national debt came into conflict with demands for increased expenditure on education, health and housing. Military conscription was brought in in 1916 and the level of income tax exemption was cut from £160 to £130 which for the first time drew some of the working class and much of the middle class into the payment of income tax. 
Within a few years, however, the number of taxpayers was reduced again by raising the tax-free allowance for children and extending it to wives. It was with an eye to this particular history of balance that in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, there were a number of debates among welfare economists about the feasibility of setting up a system of national welfare to be funded through taxation. One such was Arthur Bowley, who sought to ascertain the amount of money that could be taken from the rich and added to the wages of the poor, such that it would both alleviate poverty and not be an undue burden on the rich. In making his calculations, Bowley determined the national income, which was made up of the total income of people within the United Kingdom, as well as income received from abroad, deducted the amount that would be necessary for running the government, and then divided the remainder by the population of the UK. The national dividend then, that was to provide the economic basis for welfare provision, was, as Pigou writes, the objective income of the community, including, of course, income derived from abroad, that is, from empire. The national dividend was explicitly an imperial dividend that was distributed nationally. In 1929, no less a figure than Winston Churchill, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, stated the following, and I quote, The income which we derive each year from commission and services rendered to foreign countries is over £65 million. In addition, we have a steady revenue from foreign investments of close on £300 million a year. That is the explanation of the source from which we are able to defray social services at a level incomparably higher than that of any European country. These resources from overseas constitute the keystone of our economic position. This statement was made in response to an interjection by Ellen Wilkinson MP in the House of Commons, claiming that the post-war sacrifices that Churchill was calling to be made were class sacrifices, not national sacrifices. As Churchill sets out, while there were disparities among the classes in Britain, all classes benefited from overseas resources, especially as these were used to defray the costs of social services. Radical arguments about class were countered by conservative claims about the nation, but each was belied by the colonies and empire and their classes that underlay both claims. This common erasure comes to be central to the development of politics and scholarship oriented to the welfare state. It was the shared experience of total war that according to Asa Briggs amongst others, forced politicians to consider the community as a whole and to deploy communal resources to abate poverty and to assist those in distress. Warfare and welfare then, were conjoined in bringing together the idea of citizens as a nation. However, not only were the wars fought by the British Empire and not simply the British nation, but they were also significantly funded by that wider population through increased taxation. During the First World War, over one million Indian soldiers served overseas and over two million fought for the Allies in the Second World War, where India's contribution roughly equal that of South Africa, Canada, New Zealand, and other, other Commonwealth territories put together. 
In addition, as Anita Singh argues, India was a financial reservoir for imperial defence. During both wars, the home charges that India paid to Britain for colonial rule were dramatically increased, as was India's expenditure on the military. After the First World War, India provided a coerced gift to Britain, a gift that most of the Indian population knew nothing about, of £100 million as an additional contribution to the war effort. And Britain's debt to India of £55 million was unilaterally erased through currency manipulation. During the Second World War, alongside the increase in military expenditure attributed to the Indian budget, as Aditya Mukherjee sets out, India further supported the war effort through a series of forced loans. Goods and services were provided to the British in return for IOUs, that is, sterling balances, which led to severe shortages and runaway inflation in India. In earlier discussions about how the war was to be funded, Keynes had argued that one option was to let prices rise more than real wages, that is, inflation. This would redistribute incomes away from wages to profits, which could then be taxed in order to pay for the war. Such a scheme, however, he recognised, would disproportionately hurt the poorest classes, and in order to ensure domestic working class support, the scheme was disregarded in favour of a system of graded taxation. However, the scheme, which was regarded as too regressive for implementation in Britain, was, as Utsapat Naik argues, implemented in India upon a colonised population with one thirtieth of the per head income and which in 1943 led to the deaths of over 3 million civilians in the Bengal famine. So Britain, in contrast, was able to contain inflationary pressures at home, and additionally was also able to develop and implement welfare policies in the post-war period, which, as Noel Whiteside argues, had as their objective to protect the whole population, but particularly the working population, from the consequences of the conflict. So again, one sees the divisions of the polity and the lethal consequences of such bifurcation for colonised populations. Britain emerged from the Second World War, owing more than £3 billion to her creditors, while also being committed to the construction of the welfare state. How this was to be managed was how Britain had always managed its domestic responsibilities. By turning to empire. The two primary ways in which Britain did this were first, it ran down the amount it owed to India and Pakistan after independence, and second, it subordinated the economies of its remaining colonies to its national concerns. In other words, the imperial dividend continued after the end of empire and was integral to the construction of the post-war welfare state. By the end of 1945, Britain owed India £1.3 billion, a third of the total it owed to the rest of its sterling creditors. From the outset, British officials sought to write down the balances owed, given that they could not unilaterally write them off, even though this had initially been attempted and had actually been done after the First World War. Marcelo Abreu sets out the many ways by which Britain managed what was called concealed cancellation. First, there was the lower rates of interests on the loans obtained by Britain from India. 
Second, there were higher pension charges, including liability for all pensions of civil and military personnel working in India prior to independence. And third, and perhaps most importantly, there was the devaluation of sterling in 1949, which occurred without a gold clause, such as that which had protected creditors like Argentina and Brazil. Officially, there was a cancellation of around a third of the outstanding Indian balances, although many scholars believe this figure to be a serious underestimation, all things considered. In addition to cancelling a significant amount of its debt to India and Pakistan, then Alistair Hines argues that Britain also harnessed the colonial resources from its remaining empire and aligned colonial fiscal and monetary policy to the needs of its own national economy. As he sets out, Malaya was the most valuable of Britain's dollar earning colonies with its exports of rubber and tin, closely followed by the Gold Coast, which was to become Ghana and also Nigeria. The dollars earned by these countries through sale of their raw products were forced to be put into a dollar pool to be controlled by Britain. In this way, David Fieldhouse argues that British colonies were made to tie up funds that they might otherwise have used for their own development in order to give Britain cheap credit and to subsidize Britain's post-war standard of living. The development of the British welfare state in the post-war period then depended on the writing down of the debt that Britain owed to newly independent India and Pakistan, appropriating the dollar earnings of its remaining colonies and subordinating the economic development requirements of those colonies to its own needs. The economic health of the British state relied on these relations of economic and political subordination. And yet there is almost no discussion of them in the literature discussing the emergence of the domestic welfare state. So to move to a conclusion, as John Hills argued in an altogether different context, but useful for my purposes here, and I quote, the redistributive effect of the welfare state cannot be judged just by looking at who benefits from it. One also has to look at who pays for it through the tax system and in other ways. Once we, once we consider the state to have been an imperial state, and not just a national state, we come to understand the deeper inequalities that the welfare state represents. Inequalities that we haven't even yet systematically thought about, let alone come to terms with how we might provide reparation. The relations of extraction of the British state constituted it as an imperial state. Its relations of redistribution exemplified the national project at its heart. The injustice embodied in that asymmetry is central to arguments about the legitimacy of the claims of a white working class erroneously claimed to be left behind in competition with minorities and migrant others. It's reproduced in discourses and practices that privilege national citizens over others, that is in the discourses of blue labor or red Tory. But the asymmetry is also reproduced within mainstream social science every time we take the nation state as the unit of analysis and not the wider empire or imperial state. There were both direct and indirect benefits to the domestic population of taxation from the wider empire. 
The direct benefits resulted from the simple accrual of additional wealth and resources for domestic purposes, including the reduction in the domestic tax burden and the enhanced levels of social services available nationally. The indirect benefits involved the compounded loss suffered by the colonized populations and the global patterns of inequality that continue through to the present. The end of empire did not bring an end to the legacies of its social structures, including their modes of legitimation. My call here today is for a better social science located in a more adequate understanding of the shared histories that have configured our present, in order to find more expansive and generous solutions to the problems that face us. That us must be inclusive of those currently presented as other, and as being outside the web of reciprocity in which obligations are recognized. And this is something that we have to understand both historically and contemporaneously. While it may have been the metropolitan bourgeoisie that explicitly exploited colonized populations, as Aditya Mukherjee argues, metropolitan society as a whole benefited at the cost of the entire colonial people. There is an urgent need for us to reconsider the broader shared histories of the polity undivided as central to the future possibilities of the welfare state. This will involve a reconfiguration of our disciplines, what I have elsewhere called epistemological justice, as well as justice through material reparations. Thank you. Gaminda, thank you very much. That was um, rich and fascinating and uh, quite enlightening as well. Um, just give you a chance to maybe have a drink of water or uh, <laughs> relax for a second. Um, just to remind uh, the audience, please do uh, type your questions into the Q&A panel. Um, if possible, say who you are, where you're from. Uh, above all, if you're currently a student or alumni or you're joining us next year. Um, and we'll try to group questions together and uh, give uh, Gaminda a full opportunity to, to answer them. Um, Okay, a, a, a broad one from me to start with, Gaminda. This is part of a, a bigger project that you're you're doing on the welfare state. Could you tell us a little bit about that and where it's going and what you're doing on that? Yes, yeah, so um, I was involved in organising a conference and an edited volume around ideas of taxation and welfare across European empires, looking at the ways in which the wealth that was extracted through colonial processes, that some of that wealth at least comes back into Europe in order to support welfare projects in Europe. And that can be welfare projects associated with the church, for example. You know, a lot of poor relief was organized through parishes and so on, and donations were made to the church. And I just, and there has been no systematic consideration of the extent of the wealth that was brought back into Europe from colonial projects abroad and how that influx of wealth comes to support and enable national communities within Europe and acts to the detriment and the loss of that income obviously acts to the detriment of the communities from which the wealth is being extracted. And so this first project is a book I'm co-editing with Julia McClure from the University of Glasgow is an attempt to sort of provide a, a, an account of different European empires and the different 
practices that they undertook, looking both at you know at the Spanish and Portuguese empires and their involvements in South America, as well as then the Dutch and into East Asia and and so on, just to look at some of these similarities that existed across these modes of extraction and the welfare contributions made by this, and to hope that from that point, we might begin to think about these issues um, more systematically within, within our own disciplines. Thank you. Um, okay, we've got some questions coming in, so I'll, uh, I'll fire them at you. Um, the first one is from uh, Susie Hall, who's uh, LSE Sociology. Um, I had it a second ago. I'm just trying to find it. I've just lost it. Um, hang on. Here it is. Okay. So Susie asks, could we think about migrant labor as a continued form of extraction where individuals trained and skilled elsewhere through other tax bases service and sustain needs in Britain? What might a web of reciprocity look like in this instance? No, I think that's really interesting because I think one of the things, I mean, there was a recent paper by John Narayan, Des Fitzgerald and others who are looking at the way in which the NHS, for example, is funded uh, and supported very much by uh, nurses and doctors who are trained overseas and then come to work within Britain. And what that means is that the countries elsewhere fund the training and the education of these people who then leave and bring their skills and expertise to us here in Britain, which we enjoy without having had to pay for the training and and so on. And so whereas in the past, you could see that there was a colonial drain of mineral resources or natural resources and and pure wealth, what we're seeing now is almost a second colonial drain, the colonial brain drain, as people have talked about it. And I think that's as uh, problematic um, as those earlier practices and, and it's also partly why I wouldn't make the argument for migration as a solution to the problems that exist. I mean, you know, in the, in the sense that there have been arguments recently by some saying that migration should be seen as a form of decolonization and, and so on. Whereas for me, that does nothing to address the global inequalities that are precisely the reasons that prompt people to wish to leave where they are otherwise based in order to make a better life for themselves. So it's great that we can welcome people who have these skills and so on, but we actually are also then implicated in the reproduction of those global patterns of inequality because a doctor or a nurse who comes to work here is a loss to the country that trained them and to the populations there and this has been highlighted very much within the current pandemic context and i think those inequalities are are, are becoming ever starker and that one way and that the only way to address them is to address the patterns of inequality themselves understand how they've been produced historically through these colonial processes and work out a process of reparation that begins to undo those inequalities and create uh, a more just world. Thank you. Uh, the Q&A panel is heating up now, so I'll, I'll throw another one at you. This is from uh, Dwayne Benjamin from the University of Guyana, um, who asks, could you please share your thoughts on the view that the formation of welfare state in Britain and the consequential incapacity of Britain to support its colonial empire is what led to Britain abandoning empire? I think it's less that Britain abandoned empire that, uh, 
than that empire abandoned Britain. So there were systematic processes of decolonization in the mid 20th century onwards, which were about people arguing for self-determination, for national independence, and seeking not to be exploited and subjugated in the ways that they were within imperial processes. What I find interesting is that the period of the establishment of the welfare state is the period that sees the beginnings of systematic decolonization and is also the period of the, the, the wars in Malaya and elsewhere, which are carried out precisely to keep the remaining colonies part of the British Empire in order to exploit their dollar earning capacity. And that's something, you know, and it wasn't until Britain managed to sort of resolve some of those problems that you then begin to have the acceptance of decolonization through in the late 50s and 60s. And so if you look at the way in which Britain managed its relations with the remaining empire in the decades after the decolonization of India and Pakistan, you begin to see how this process was managed to ensure that there was no financial detriment to Britain as a consequence of these places choosing to decolonize themselves. And so I think it's less an issue of um, Brit you know, of Britain abandoning empire in that way. Thanks, Glamenda. Uh, two, two more questions now. Uh, the first is from John Bryant, a retired friend of the LSE, um, who asks, you completed your lecture by suggesting reparations to the UK's former colonies should be considered for the tax take that diminished their own development potential. How would you start to convince the UK's current political parties to take this idea seriously? That's a question I'd like to ask, maybe privately on reparations too, actually, because um, it's a it's a brilliant uh, question, this. And then one from Simon Choate, politics lecturer at Kingston University, who says, thank you for your excellent talk. At the very end, you touched on the question of material reparations. Could you expand a little bit on this? Uh, how should it work? And I second this question too. Okay. No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think... So if, if, if there isn't anybody who's making the argument, then the argument doesn't need to be considered. Mm. And it's, it's an argument that at the heart of social science hasn't been made explicitly in the way that I think it needs to. That's not to say that such arguments haven't been made. Hilary Beckles has made a very strong claim for reparations. He wrote a book called Britain's Black Debt in which he argued explicitly for reparations for the, Car for the Caribbean community in terms of the long histories of, of enslavement and colonization that bind the Caribbean into uh, the British polity. And then Shashi Tharoor a couple of years ago spoke at the Oxford Union debating the question of whether reparations were owed to India as a consequence of, of colonization and so on as well. And so there have been these arguments. What I'm trying to do with the research that I'm currently doing is to look explicitly at the arguments that get made around questions of legitimacy in their own terms, and then think about the histories that are part of that that are not considered, and then think about the ways in which if we draw those histories in, how that might change the arguments that we're making. So in relation to arguments around taxation, there is a strong sense that the taxation of a population and the, the returns to the population of that taxation have to be demonstrated and have to be 
uh, deliberated through forms of legislative assemblies and so on. So there has to be a return to the population and the population provides legitimacy for the act of taxation. Now that's sort of in a way, a basic standard understanding. Now, and, and the empire is often seen as somehow separate to that, that's somewhere else. Yes, we can say empire was terrible, it was bad or, or whatever it was, but it doesn't impinge upon our understanding of ourselves and the state that we're interested in. But if, however, as I try to do within this paper is to say, well, the modes of extraction and the modes of redistribution that we regard as being central to the formation of our understanding of the state, if these also occurred, in the context of empire, an income tax was extracted from Indian subjects of empire, but they had no representation. And even in the most extreme situations of food scarcity and famine, there was no sense that the central government had any uh, responsibility to alleviate those issues, despite these people being taxpayers, then actually the relationship between tax and redistribution is not quite as straightforward as we otherwise claim it to be when we think about it only within the nation. So what? So if we acknowledge that that is an injustice, then what is the politics that, that is needed in order to address that injustice? I would argue that there is a need for reparations and that reparations is material reparations because the only way to address the inequalities that colonialism has constituted is by undoing those inequalities in the present which is about equalizing those inequalities and that can only happen through material aid. There is a process of giving aid Mm -hmm. The aid is constructed as charity, it's constructed as benevolence, and we can reduce it as our government just has at whim. If that aid was understood instead as reparations for a past wrong, then we might be able to start a conversation of how we increase the aid given, relabeled as reparations, and who do we give it to and how is it organized? At the moment, some of this aid actually goes to academics in Britain under the GCRF schemes and so on. It doesn't actually go to people in other places. You know, so we continue to keep this for ourselves. And this, there's a long history of this. So the Colonial Welfare and Development Acts that were brought in in the 1940s and 1950s didn't give as much money in aid as Britain was holding of the dollar, uh, you know, the dollars that had been earned by these colonies. So if Britain had just allowed the colonies to keep their own earnings, they would have had almost 20 times as much money to be able to construct the development plans, etc. than they did through the apparent aid that was otherwise being given, and, and so on. So I think there is an injustice. I think we need to talk about it. I think we need to have that conversation. And the reason I'm making this argument now is precisely because of these arguments that are being made around questions of legitimacy and entitlement. Who's entitled to be here claiming welfare? I'm pleased you are, Gaminda, because I'm working on universal basic income and reparations is one of the key arguments that's used in relation to that by, for example, Black Lives Matter. So I'll, I'll come back to you on that at some point. Um, questions are flying in. So I'll, I've got a, a set of three now. Um, the first is from Alfonso Diaz, who's an LSE alumnus uh, from the mid 80s. 
who asks, can you elaborate on what kind of services rendered by Britain might Chancellor Churchill have had in mind when highlighting the commissions accrued to the imperial coffers? Do you think the price was right or there is no need for any Econ 101 common sense suffixes? It reflected a monopoly, both economic and colonial. Uh, then a quest question from Trujita Consalves from Kolkata, India, uh, who says, don't you feel it surprising that such an extortionist and extractionist state like Britain gave birth to the founders of modern liberalism? And then a question from Rachel Services, uh, Rachel Service, sorry, LSE, uh, MSC Inequalities, who asks, how would you suggest including this in studies of the present state of the British welfare state? Is it enough to just acknowledge the history or does more need to be done? Okay. <clears throat> Thanks. I'll try and uh, get to all of this. So when Churchill talks about the services and commissions that are being paid into the British Treasury, he's effectively talking about the home charges that are paid by India to Britain. The home charges had um, three main components. They constituted military expenditure. So the when uh, Britain fought wars, in the rest of the world. So prior to the First World War, when it was fighting wars in Afghanistan, Burma and elsewhere in order to incorporate that territory into the British Empire, it used the Indian army. And India had to pay for the Indian army to be used and mobilized for British ends. And so military expenditures constituted at least a third of that amount. Then there was the colonial service, the administrative service. Now, the Viceroy of India earned at the time £5,000 a year, which would have put him equivalent to the president of the US. So that's the amount that was being paid. And all the Indian civil service, which were all, um, for the most part, uh, British people, were all paid at quite extraordinary rates in comparison to Britain, let alone to wages in India. And all those wages were paid for through Indian taxation. And if you had worked within the Indian civil service for between 25 to 35 years, you then got an annual pension for the rest of your life of a thousand pounds a year. And that was paid for by Indian taxes, even though most people went and lived back in Britain and therefore used their pensions back in Britain. So exacerbating this multiplier effect that I was talking about before, that the uh, that workers in India are paying taxes to pay for services and and the pensions of, of this the, these people and and so on. So these are what's so the commissions and services is that colonized subjects had to pay their colonizers for being colonized and to pay that at quite an extortionate rate. So that's the the money. And then also in terms of the foreign commission you have is that people had made money in India and then they used that money to invest, for example, in railways across the US, in Argentina. The Argentinian railway system is funded predominantly by British capital that had been made in India, invested there. And the interest on that then comes back into Britain as well. So that's sort of financial economy that exists there. So there's lots of different ways in which India is the linchpin within this. In this context, is it surprising that then Britain constructs liberal, you know, liberal thought? I mean, it's sort of, what I find interesting in this is that if you go back and read 
some of those early thinkers. And, and in fact, I'll, I'll do a plug. I have a book coming out co-authored with John Homewood called Colonialism and Modern Social Theory. And we go back and look at Hobbes and Locke and then go on to look at Topville, Marx, Weber, Durkheim, Du Bois, and, and so on. And we look at the fact that actually they say much more about colonialism and empire than the secondary literature gives them credit for. And if you read what it is that they have to say about that, and you read it in the context of understanding colonial histories, you can also see what it was that they didn't reflect on, or look at the ways of, you know, so, but for both Hobbes and Locke, the way in which they understand ideas of property are explicitly associated with the taking of property in the Americas and turning that into private property in quite explicit sorts of ways. So it's not an abstract thought that they come to, but it's the thought that emerges out of colonial practices, which they recognize as colonial practices, but don't regard as significant for what it is that they wish to argue otherwise, and which subsequent secondary literatures erase the colonial context and then seek to just engage with the abstract idea. So there's a need to rethink some of these issues in terms of, um, rethinking those thinkers in the context of the colonial times that they're a part of. And then finally, to how we might change our understanding of the modern welfare state. I mean, what I found interesting was that in doing the research for this paper, I did read a lot about the history of the welfare state and what people have written and sociologists and social policy theorists and others. And there's hardly a mention of empire at all within that literature in terms of how the wealth from empire is available to the British state and enhances its capacity to provide welfare and assistance to its domestic population. That just isn't in the literature. All the focus is on the relationship between the taxation of the domestic population and what it's possible to do in welfare terms in relation to that idea of, of um, domestic taxation. And the question that, you know, so the thing that I would say is that I do think we need to think about the welfare state differently in the context of this, because we need to think about the boundaries of the welfare state that have been con constructed in terms of legitimate insiders and illegitimate others and, and so on. But we also need to think about the fact that the difficulties of the welfare state standardly come to be seen as emerging from the sort of 1970s with the fiscal crisis of the welfare state that people talk about. Now, this is the point at which the British Empire has largely been dismantled. It's gone. So that aspect of external revenue coming in, it's no longer coming in. So I don't think it's an accident that the welfare state enters a fiscal crisis precisely at the point that empire no longer exists. And yet that relationship hasn't been addressed. And by not addressing that relationship, I don't think we're going to address what are seen to be the problems of the welfare state in our contemporary period, because we don't have a proper sense of what enabled it in the first place. Thank you. A uh, set of two questions now. The first is from Adrian Favell, Bauman Institute, University of Leeds, uh, who asked, could you draw the argument through uh, to specify how the value of British citizenship nationality, i.e. as theorized by Marshall, and the rights it allows to members has been subsidized and built upon the relations of extraction you describe. Selection restrictions, exclusions of migrants, foreigners are key to this with the birthright lottery, the global system of inequality it sustains. 
And then a question from uh, Keshav Banzal, who's a graduate student at the Indira Gandhi National Open University, Delhi, India, who uh, asks, would the prof agree that a case can be made that the colonies and now sovereign states, particularly India, have inherited this asymmetrical taxation system from the imperial state, whereby the state revenue is disproportionately extracted and distributed in a manner that leaves out the marginalized and oppressed, as well as a neo-colonized tribal population of India. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, thanks for both of those questions. I think in terms of the first one, so there's a way in which political discourse has developed within Britain that is explicitly oriented to an understanding of who is the legitimate object of public policy. Particularly over the last couple of decades, there's a real concern that only insiders ought to be able to have access to the benefits of the welfare state. And these legitimate, illegitimate outsiders ought not to be. And much of the political discourse has been oriented around establishing that boundary. Now, the way in which the legitimate insider is constructed is usually constructed in terms of whether they can demonstrate historical belonging to the nation, national citizenship. Whereas if you follow through the logic of what I'm arguing, it's not only those who have who can demonstrate belonging to the nation who ought to be regarded as legitimate beneficiaries of the the wealth of that nation, but actually those who have a historical belonging to empire could also be considered as legitimate beneficiaries because the argument about legitimacy is associated with this argument of national patrimony, the idea that the wealth of the nation has been generated by the nation and should be for the nation. But what I'm trying to show is that the wealth of the nation was appropriated from empire. And it wasn't just appropriated in terms of an economic extraction, but it was appropriated through forms of political subordination so that Britain and the empire have to be understood as an undivided polity, which has been ruled asymmetrically, where the redistribution of that patrimony has been to some as opposed to others. And so all these distinctions of minorities, migrants, others, etc all come into being as a way of legitimizing the original injustice. And so in that sense, I hope that sort of answers uh, what what Adrian was asking. In terms of the second question, I I don't know about taxation in India. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if the forms of taxation reproduce the forms that had existed previously within under British rule, because so many things have that sort of continuity. And so the work would need to be done to look at this and and examine it. I mean, just the one thing that I want to mention, and one of the things in the course of doing the research for this paper that really struck me and really took me aback in lots of ways was the fact that after independence, India and Pakistan still had to pay the pensions of all those administrators and military personnel and civil service personnel who had worked in India prior to independence. And I don't think that was paid off till something like the 1970s. So it was this sort of, you know, I mean, just that just came to mind in relation to that, but I don't know about taxation in India. 
Okay, thanks, Gaminda. Uh, three, there's a lot of questions, so we'll just try and drive through them without exhausting you. We've got three, three now. The first comes from Lucy, an A-level student, uh, who asks, what is your opinion on the nature of the lasting legacy of this colonial injustice in terms of social repercussions and structures of taxation today on the countries involved in the empire, as well as attitudes today in Britain? Thank you. That was very useful. Uh, and then we have one from Brian Boyle, PhD student at Vrije University in Brussels. Can similar reciprocal relationships be observed between national welfare states and colonies in other European states and empires? As I was typing this, you just mentioned your future project in this respect, but you do you have any early empirical insight? Mm -hmm. And finally, um, from Lizzie Wilmington, who asks, thinking about the fact that good value for the taxpayer is justification for the appalling conditions that people seeking asylum are being kept in in Pembrokeshire and Folkestone. Do you think immigration laws play a role as a punitive measure for exclusion of the welfare state? Okay, another great set of questions. Really good. <laughs> yes. Um, so one of the lasting legacies of that period of taxation is the embedded patterns of global inequality. Because if you take money from one place, if you take money from place A and give it to place B, it's not just like if you think of a zero sum game, you take something from here and you give it to over there and you know it's just slightly more. But actually the taking of it from one place and the giving of it to another place has, as I was saying in Keynes's term, a multiplier effect that actually reinforces the poverty of some places and the wealth of other places. So if there's one takeaway from this, what I would hope it would be is that poverty in the world is not natural. Poverty in the world is produced. And the very same processes that produce poverty in particular places produce wealth in other places. And there's an intimate relationship between those. So if we're committed, to global redistribution, if we're committed to a more equitable and a fairer world, then we have to understand that our wealth is not a consequence of our qualities. It's a consequence of these historical processes that have produced inequality and poverty elsewhere. And so that if we want to do something about it, we don't do it as aid or charity or benevolence. We do it because we're committed to the just redistribution of resources. And that's the only way in which these things can be addressed. And so I think that the lasting legacy is the deeply embedded patterns of global inequality. And the only way we're going to address the, the problems that arise from that is by addressing that inequality. Other European states did very similar sorts of things. I mean, there's Interestingly, the most similar example to India is actually Ireland. So if you look at the patterns of British rule in India and British rule in Ireland, you see that there are quite similar modes of extraction. So in India, it was done through tax. In Ireland, it was done through absentee landlords and land rents. This was one of the ways in which money was taken out of Ireland, but because the landlords lived in Britain, it was spent within the economy within Britain. And so you have this multiplier effect between Ireland and Britain in a similar sort of way. And so there have been a few um, 
mostly Indian economists and others who've looked at this relationship in comparative terms. Other European countries do very similar sorts of things, you know, so you have Spain involved in uh, uh, Latin America and you have money coming back, not through as, as taxation straightforwardly, but um, through modes of circulation, particularly through the giving of money then to the church before you're about to die in order to pay for your passage through into heaven. You know, so those gifts that get made within that religious sort of context come to be, again, the extraction of money from one place and the, the removal of it to other places. The Netherlands is part of this. France is absolutely part of this in relation to its North African colonies and elsewhere as well. And so uh, the, the the book that I'm co-editing with Julia McClure has these examples and it should hopefully come out in the next year or so. Um, and then there was a third question about immigration laws. I mean, yes, it's this idea that, you know, if we have the idea that the only way welfare can be appropriately provided is if there are boundaries that determine who's inside and who's outside, then one of the ways of maintaining the sense of those on the outside is through these sorts of laws. And what I find interesting is how these things have shifted over time and yet how we don't really have a proper historical understanding, both of the changes in law and their consequences. So for example, in 1948, after India and Pakistan have become independent, they establish forms of citizenship. Britain doesn't have a nationality act at that time. So the British Nationality Act comes in in 1948, and for the first time, citizenship is legislated for explicitly. And there are two main forms of citizenship. One is that you're a citizen of the UK and its colonies. Second is that you're a Commonwealth citizen. There are a couple of other forms, but these are the two main ones. Both of those forms of citizenship give you the right to live, work, claim benefits in Britain. There was no distinction made between those. Part of the reason being because at that time, the direction of movement was from Britain to the rest of the world, not from the rest of the world to Britain. Of course, in the post-war period, as people from other parts of empire start coming to Britain, then there's suddenly a sort of sense of panic in Parliament. I know we gave you all rights, we didn't mean you to come. Why have you come? And so then there are arguments around the establishment of the Commonwealth Immigration Acts in the 1960s and 1970s, which take rights away from citizens and turn them into immigrants. So Raiko Karatani has a lovely phrase called making citizens into immigrants. And this is what the British state does. And it does it under the pretext of protecting the welfare uh, benefits for its citizens. And again, not recognizing that it's only able to provide those benefits because of imperial citizens who have actually contributed to that pot. And so the drawing of these boundaries is precisely to keep out those constituencies that it claims are illegitimate, but they're only illegitimate if you don't take the history of the British imperial state as the history of the British nation. Thank you. Two more questions now. Uh, the first is from Sam Pryke, Wolverhampton Uni, who says, uh, stimulating talk. I thought taxation was used a little bit loosely. Taxation on British trading companies active in empire, taxation on wealthier groups in India, landowners, taxation on commodities or direct income tax on the mass of the population. All of them, some much more than others. 
if the latter, the mass of the population, what proportion of the Indian population directly paid taxes to British authorities during empire? And then we have a question from Julia Moses, University of Sheffield. Could you expand on your understanding of polity in this research? Is this an imperial polity or a national metropolitan polity? To what extent do these two polities overlap? Okay. Okay. So, I mean, yes, taxation is used loosely. And in part, it's because there is obfuscation within the literature about what constitutes taxation. So when the East India Company uh, first takes over the right to collect taxes in Bengal, Bihar and Orissa, it effectively takes over the existing taxation regime. So the Mughal emperors in that uh, area had had a taxation regime and the taxation regime worked effectively in the sense that the people who worked the land would provide taxes to uh, the Mughal regime and they would take the taxes and use them to conduct wars, do all the stuff that you know they, they do. And the East India Company took that over. The one difference or one of the key differences between the two comes to be seen almost immediately. So the East India Company takes over tax collecting rights in 1767. In the 1770s, the rains fail and there's a drought and some of the crops fail. And as a consequence of that, there's the beginnings of food shortages. Now, under the Mughal period, what would have happened is that the Mughal emperor would have kept some money aside from the taxes that were paid in order to provide relief during these sorts of periods. And up until the period of uh, the East India Company, whilst there had been food shortages, there had been no famines and certainly no famines that produced death because within the literature now, people also distinguish between famines that produce food shortages and famines that produce death. Under East India Company rule, the taxes that were collected, first of all, they quintupled the, the amount of taxation within 20 years. So they raised taxes considerably upon the, the population. They also took the entirety of the tax to Britain as, as private income, as wealth, as, as whatever, you know. And so in that sense, and then when the, the crops failed, there was no money to provide relief because they didn't see themselves as responsible for all the population from whom they're collecting taxes. And in that famine, 10 million people died. One in three of the population of Bengal died in that famine and you know Governor Hastings who comes in subsequently writes a report sort of saying I don't believe that that famine occurred that 10 million people died and yet we continue to collect more taxes our tax income increased during this period so there's a sense of what you know that tax under East India Company is almost pure appropriation of whatever and that there's a lot of research and I can point you to that if you want to look at it in more detail. The issue then becomes that land revenue is not considered as a tax because it's seen to be rent that's provided for land that is owned by the state. But we're talking about India here and Britain collecting it but the, the revenues. So this was not land owned by the British state, it was land appropriated by Britain. And then the land revenue, as many Indian economists have argued, ought to be considered as a tax. There were also taxes on commodities. 
And these could be considered as VAT and sort of on luxuries, except in the context of India, the salt tax was incredibly pernicious because in a tropical climate, you have to eat salt, otherwise you get very ill and die. And so the salt tax was one way of taxing the poor population uh, at, at quite disproportionate levels. And then you also have the opium tax, and that was in terms of sort of tariffs and so on, on the, the sale of opium or the, you know, the forced sale of opium to the Chinese and then the taxes on, on that and so on. So there are lots of different forms of taxation. Many of them are value, well, taxations on items of consumption. Some of them are forms of taxation in terms of tariffs. And you have land revenue, which ought to be considered as tax. And then in 1860, the British Crown establishes an explicit form of income tax, where people's income, remember again that, you know, the majority of people aren't earning a money wage in India. They're working on, you know, uh, on the land, and many much of the payment is made in kind often. So a lot of the population doesn't act, isn't actually part of the money economy and can't pay a, a tax on that. And so the people who are paying tax are those who are part of that, the money economy on which tax. And that's why the failure to provide relief at times of famine is not related to the shortage of food because it's related to the shortage of people being able to work and earn money to be able to pay for the food. So the food is there, except it's being exported out on trains. So more grain comes to Britain during periods of famine than you might expect, given that it's a period of famine and millions are dying in that uh, situation. So the looseness around taxation in the talk is a reflection of the looseness of the way in which taxation is considered and, and, and dealt with um, within that literature. On polity, I mean, what I'm trying to get at through the use of that term is, is partly a sense that, you know, we talk about the nation and empire. And we often talk about the nation that has an empire, as if the nation can be understood separately from the empire that it just has as a possession. And I will, and that, you know, so within sort of everybody from sort of Gary Runciman through to I'm reading David Edgerton's latest book, is this idea that somehow there's a British nation that exists separately. And what happens there doesn't impinge upon how we can understand the nation. And so by talking about the imperial polity, what I'm pointing to is that the relations of extraction, that is taxation, construct empire and Britain as one polity, as one political entity, and that the relations of redistribution, which only occur nationally, point to the national project that's at the heart of this, a national and racialized project you know, that, that points to that notion of colonial difference, which then comes to be reproduced every time we think of Britain as a nation and we seek to ground our sociological analyses in this idea of Britain as a nation. And by using the word polity, I want us to think beyond the nation to the state that's produced through the practices of those in Westminster upon Britain, Ireland, India, and the broader empire, and how the bringing together of all of those actually enables us to begin to think about whether we have been just 
in the way in which we've dealt with who we think we are and those who then come and various other sorts of questions related to that. Thank you. Uh, we've got less than 10 minutes left and 10, 10 questions. <laughs> um, would you mind if I throw four at you? And maybe, maybe you can decide, you know, how to weave your way through uh, just so everyone gets a chance to be heard. So the first is from Ali Bajade at the University of Tehran, um, who says, uh, as a truth regime, has the British welfare state transformed the concepts of other and us? And then we have a question from Dr. Trujita Gonzalez, who's the Assistant Professor in Political Science, Lady Braybourne College, Kolkata, India, who asks, if we had followed the policies of Netajul Subhas Chandra Bose rather than those of Mahatma Gandhi's non-violent methods, could it have been possible for us to retrieve the money Britain owed to us at the time of independence? Uh, and a question from Marilyn uh, Foray, University of Cape Town, who asks, what do you think about the relationship between the decline of empire, the formal process of decolonization and the waning of the welfare state and the start of the neoliberal era, which was, of course, also a global project? And then finally, uh, the fourth of this set from Arya uh, Banerjee Watts, sixth form student in London, who asks, is the underfunding of a welfare state we see today a consequence of the significant shift of the sources of funding in the modern day? Do you think it is possible to fully fund a large welfare state when we obviously do not have income from the empire anymore? So four, four great questions. Take your pick. Yes, so those are great. Um, so the question about both Spash Chandra Bose or Gandhi, I mean, I don't think it was them, that, or I don't think it was whether one or either of them would have had dominance that would have led to the conversations occurring differently. So these are negotiations that are happening from the late 30s onwards between uh, Indian um politicians and others who are agitating for for independence with people uh, like Keynes and others and, and so on in terms of determining particularly in the 1940s beginning to determine how this money is going to repay and what's going to happen when independence actually occurs and in reading the literature on this one of the things that was quite extraordinary that came up within it was up until how late the British believed that by granting India independence, all that would change is that the Indians would run India, but that they would run it for the benefit of Britain. That is that the Indian army would still be available to Britain to run its uh, colonial empire in Malaya and other places and so on. And that India would determine its economic policy to benefit Britain. And indeed some of the clauses that were put in in the in the the repayment of the debt that Britain owed to India was that India couldn't access dollars at certain amounts. It, you know, the amount that was returned was only returned in in various chunks, and as I said, a lot of it was concealed and not actually repaid. And and that's I don't know whether Bose would have made a difference to that negotiation because there were so many other people involved within those discourses, but I don't know about that. So that 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 would be an interesting question to explore. Um, with neoliberalism, 
I mean, in a way, absolutely, because I think that, again, most accounts of the emergence of neoliberalism locate it in terms of developments that occur in the West, but by divorcing those developments from the systematic dismantling of the colonial, of the European colonial empires that had structured the world otherwise. And so one of the key events that occurs in the mid to late 20th century is that you have a transformation of the world through decolonization. And yet people write reams of histories and accounts of issues of democracy and liberalism and neoliberalism without ever once mentioning decolonization as the key transformative event of the 20th century that begins to reshape what the world looks like and how it's organized. Now, there could be the danger of stating that case too forcefully in the sense that the relations of economic dependency continue along pre-colonial lines. But if we don't make colonialism and formal decolonization central to our understanding of what happens in the 60s, 70s and 80s, then we're not going to understand neoliberalism in terms of what it is, which is a reaction to decolonization and a reaction to other parts of the world wishing to be equal to those parts of the world which has established their modes of living on the back of extractions of wealth from others. And so neoliberalism is strongly configured by a resistance to decolonization and the equality that decolonization itself is, is sort of bound up in. And so I think that there's a real, there is a real need to have a look at that. And whether the welfare state at the moment is undermined because, I mean, the thing to remember is that there were countries such as Sweden, for example, that established a welfare state without having as explicit a form of external income with which to develop their internal welfare capacities. A lot of other European countries established their welfare policies explicitly tied to domestic taxation, uh, that relationship is much more explicit. Britain doesn't tie its welfare capacity to domestic taxation because it has this revenue coming in from overseas. And even at the point of establishing the welfare state, one of the first things that Britain does is continue its war in Malaya. So at the time when Britain owes its creditors three billion pounds, it is seeking to establish a welfare state. It then, it's lost access to the Indian army because India is now independent. And so this is when conscription comes in outside of wartime. So the first uh, time that peacetime conscription occurs is in 1949. And that's in order to send men to Malaya to ensure that Malaya doesn't fall to the communists and take away the dollars that are earned through the sale of rubber and tin for which Malaya is, is uh, you know, has, has in huge quantities and to remove those dollars from Britain's financial considerations. And this war, which Again, you know, reading up on this, it's extraordinary how little it's part of our collective imagination of the, the, the practices of the British armies in Malaya come to be seen as prefiguring what the US then does in Vietnam. 
So the use of defoliation agents, for example, is pioneered by the British in Malaya. The use of sort of herding people up into particular into camps and, and keeping them there and so on. All of this stuff is being done in Malaya and then comes to also be done by the Americans in Korea and Vietnam. So it's the precursor to those, those conflicts. And the way in which it's able to do that is because it's still collecting this money in from the rest of empire. So Britain uniquely funds its domestic capacities and its continuing role on the world stage through empire. And one of the reasons perhaps that we haven't recognized this is that the point of the systematic dismantling of the British Empire, Britain enters the EEC, then the European Union. And so it sort of, it doesn't have to reckon with what the end of empire means and the shift from being a global empire to being a small island, because it's now joined a new transnational federation, which enables it to maintain a sense of itself as being a global power. So it will be truly interesting to see what leaving the EU now means. And I think it's not surprising that we suddenly have this concern to hold on to how empire had been a good thing and how it defines us and it was about our role in the world, that why has this come up right now? Is it because we've left the EU and suddenly thought, oh my God, we don't ha actually have that thing that we thought that we were because we didn't really need to think about it because we were part of this other club and we had this great power, but now we don't have it. Now, what do we do? How do we reckon with that? And I think we have to reckon with it. Thanks, Gamina. We're, we're running one minute over time. I've been told I'm allowed four more minutes, but not questions. <laughs> uh, there's six questions hovering or maybe even seven. I'm just going to pick out one because I like it. And I think I know it seems a nice way to close. And this is from Duncan Reed, who's a Birkbeck alumnus, who asks, is there a need to realign the content of UK school textbooks to make current citizens aware of the complicity of this country in the brutality and appropriation of wealth of British colonialism and of what they owe to those who were exploited? I think it's absolutely vital for us to understand our history. British history is imperial history. There's no getting away from that. There is nothing that makes Britain Britain except the empire. If we don't understand British imperial history as British history, we then don't understand who we are in Britain. And so these difficulties and these complexities and these sort of this sense of angst that, that you know, seems to sort of just be a pervasive part of everyday discourse, it's like, let's just look at what was our history? Looking at our history and understanding what it was that was done doesn't mean that we're to blame for the history that was done, but we can consider the fact that to the extent that we, and by we, I mean all of us who benefit from that history, and that's all of us who are on this call properly because we have access to the technology that enables us to be part of this conversation, we have benefited from those histories that have produced inequality elsewhere. So what are we going to do about it? The past is the past, but the only way we can move forward is if we account for that past and seek to construct a more just world 
for ourselves going forward. And that doesn't have to involve angst and blame and recrimination and guilt and those sorts of things, but it does have to involve a clear, sober-eyed look at what was done, what consequences did that have, what openings are there for doing things differently and constructing a different world. Amanda, thank you so much. That was incredibly provocative and uh, thought-provoking and enriching uh, talk. The Q&A was brilliant. Thank you ever so much, everybody, for attending, for fantastic questions. We've got some uh, hanging questions in the chat, so uh, maybe we can forward those to you so you can see what kinds of things people were asking. Uh, but thank you so much, and I'm sure if we were in the hall now, there will be a lot of applause, so I'll, I'll applaud on behalf of everybody that's present. Thank you very, very much for, for uh, being our lecturer this year, and goodbye, everybody.